Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. The 2019 Summer Sunday Lecture Series focuses on the outstanding collections of old master paintings in the National Gallery of Art, and also includes a discussion of the extraordinary American furniture from the Kaufman Collection, currently on view on the ground floor of the West Building. Over the decades, appreciation of 18th century French art has fluctuated between preference for the alluring decorative canvases of Rococo artists such as Francois Boucher and Jean-Honoré Fragonard to admiration for the sober neoclassicism championed by Jacques-Louis David and his pupils. In this final lecture in the series, presented on August 25th, David Gareff, senior lecturer, surveys the history of French art in the 18th century from the time of Louis XIV to the French Revolution. In addition to works by Boucher, Fragonard, and David, scenes of daily life by Antoine Watteau, Jean-Simeon Chardin, and Jean-Baptiste Groys are discussed. My name is David Gareff. I'm a senior lecturer here. And uh, we are coming today to the final uh, lecture in our summer uh, series of talks. We began back in June. And uh, today is the last talk as the fall approaches. I would like to just remind you that in the autumn, uh, we will be opening up our fall season with an exhibition devoted to the art of uh, Andrea dal Verrocchio, the Florentine sculptor, and that'll open on September 15th. Uh, I'd like to thank my colleagues who uh, lectured through the course of the summer, uh, Lorena Bradford, Heidi Applegate, Diane Stevens, and Eric Denker. If you missed any of their talks, these talks have been uh, recorded and they're available on the NGA website uh, under the videos, but they're also posted to YouTube. So if you haven't been able to attend all of the lectures, you can go back and find the ones that you missed. We devoted the summer series essentially to an investigation of the masterpieces that are found in the West Building. And so that's what the topics of the talks uh, dealt with. I'm concluding the series today with a discussion of French art, 18th century French art, in the uh, National Gallery's permanent collection. Now, when we talk about French painting, and I will, in fact, also be talking a little bit about sculpture in the 18th century, there are some themes or leitmotifs that track through the century that it's important to keep in mind as you begin to look at the works of art Certainly one of the major themes is this transition that takes place uh, between the art of Louis XIV in France and Louis XV. So this shift from Louis XIV to Louis XV uh, will be particularly important in terms of changes in taste. The 18th century in France is also the period of the uh, Enlightenment and the importance of French thinkers, French philosophes as they were known, associated with the Enlightenment, such as Denis Diderot, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, Montesquieu, Voltaire, also figure prominently in a discussion of 18th century French art. As we progress through the century, by the middle years of the century, we are already seeing a, a change in taste towards what we have come to call neoclassicism. And this, of course, revolves in part around the discoveries and excavations at Pompeii and Herculaneum, which do take place in the middle years of the 18th century. 
And of course, this is the age of revolution, the American Revolution and the French Revolution and those events. And in France, then Napoleon's rise to power will also figure prominently. And by the end of the century, we're already beginning to see hints of what will come to be called a romantic um, aesthetic or romanticism. And so we'll be making some references to that as we go along as well. Now I start with this image. And the uh, image in the National Gallery is the one on the right, which is a bronze statue of Louis XIV from around 1780. But it's based on the sculpture at the left. The sculpture on the left is by Gian Lorenzo Bernini. It is a bust of Louis XIV that's in marble. It dates to 1665. This is today in one of the grand apartments in the Palace of Versailles. The Bernini bust is what our bronze was based on. Our bronze is later, as I said, it dates to probably around 1780, certainly before 1793. But I bring in these images just to illustrate the importance of Louis XIV, the death of Louis XIV, and then what will transpire in his wake. And in part, we're going to be dealing with this period of the Enlightenment in the 18th century, when Enlightenment thinkers attempt to sort of transform Western Europe into a modern uh, society, something that is based on reason, that is rational, secular for the most part. This affects law and government with the writings of Montesquieu. It affects comportment, social ideas with Rousseau and Voltaire. And this idea of creating a climate of art that would serve a higher purpose is going to become more and more important as the uh, century unfolds. Here again, two images, very famous images, uh, of on the left, Louis XIV from 1702, and Louis XV on the right from 1742. These are both by the painter Hyacinth Rigaud. Uh, the one on the left is at the Louvre, and the one on the right is at a museum in Chantilly in France. Louis XIV reigns from 1643, which is the death of Louis XIII, all the way up until his death in 1715. It's a 72-year reign, and it is the longest reign of any sovereign in European history. He has a huge impact on art and aesthetics, all of the academies that we know about in France, the Academy of Painting, the Royal Academy of Painting and Sculpture, of Dance, of Music, of Theater, are all established by Louis. Louis was somebody who believed very strongly in centralized power, essentially power that was around him and his persona. He was the great Sun King. He was so brilliant you weren't supposed to look at him directly because you'd be blinded by his brilliance. Um, <laughs> He controlled society in all aspects, which is one of the reasons why he moved the court out of Paris to Versailles and had this incredible palace built and extended over time, in part because at Versailles he could keep tabs on everybody. The idea of keeping your friends close and your enemies even, even closer. Versailles did become the center of French culture under Louis XIV. Louis XV was different. Louis XV succeeds Louis XIV, who was his great-grandfather, and he actually comes to the throne at the age of five. There is a, a regency period 
but he reigns from 1715, the death of Louis XIV, until 1774, which is, in fact, the second longest reign of a monarch in French uh, history. It succeeded only by that reign of Louis XIV. So Louis XV's reign is uh, 59 years in power. Following Louis XIV would be a tough act. And so in many ways, Louis XV realized that he would have to go in a different direction. In part, he moves the court back to Paris. Uh, when he moves the court back to Paris, that means that architecture, interior design, all these things now that were shaped at Versailles are now different when you're moving into townhouses, apartments, et cetera, in Paris. And that will affect the change in taste. The, we have the rise of important women at the court of Louis XV, most of whom, or a good portion of whom, were his mistresses, uh, most notably Madame de Pompadour. And these women become trendsetters and tastemakers. Their power now, with the sort of uh, acquiescence of the king, now is shaping uh, much of French culture in all, all realms. So that's going to be uh, a shift as well. Architecture at Versailles under Louis XIV stressed Louis XIV and stressed his power, his magnificence, and it is essentially a 17th century architectural style that can be called, for the most part, Baroque. And the Baroque had certain laws and principles, whether it was in France or in Italy or elsewhere. But when you look at some of the interiors of Versailles, you can sense what we're talking about. This is the great uh, Salon de Guerre, or the Salon of War at Versailles, a collaborative effort between Jules Mansart, who was the architect, Charles Lebrun, the painter, and Antoine Quasivo, the sculptor. This room dates to about 1715, and it has this gigantic relief of uh, Louis in his great, one of his great conquests against the Dutch in this victorious campaign. But when you look at the room itself, it is powerful, it's heavy, it's ornate, it meets at right angles, it has a lots of classical elements in terms of an entablature, classical vocabulary, volutes and scrolls, etc. Uh, all of this is tying and related to the statement that Louis is trying to make, which is the statement of his authority and of his power. These interiors were meant to impress, if not intimidate, visitors so that when foreign dignitaries would come to meet with Louis XIV, they knew, usually had to proceed along certain routes through the Palace of Versailles to get to Louis. And on the way, they were supposed to duly be impressed, if not intimidated, by the architecture and all of the glory and power that was symbolically arrayed in the, um, in the palace. Now, this is a different kind of interior. And this would be uh, Louis XV style, not Louis XIV style. And this is one of those so-called hotel or townhouses. This is the Hotel des Soubises in, outside of Paris, uh, 1737 to 1740. It was designed by the architect Delamere. And uh, here we see something different compared to the heavy, ornate, ponderous, classical grandeur of Versailles. Once Louis XV takes people back to Paris, Space is at a premium. People are living in row houses, townhouses. They're living in hotels. They're redesigning and decorating them. And this is a classic, what we would call Rococo interior of the 18th century. Now you don't see these heavy cornices that come together at right angles. 
but you actually see a room that undulates. It's like a shell. It has a scroll-like undulation, a scallop-like shell. It has ornate decorative plaster work, in this case gilded, that goes up into the ceiling. It's filled with light. At Versailles, when you're at the Salon de Guerre, it's dark, it's heavy. But here now we have a room that opens up with these French doors and French windows to the outside so that you get a wonderful sense of light and lightness as well. And this is in no small way reflecting a different taste in some ways, and especially here it's reflecting the taste of important women who are now, as, as I said, trendsetters. This interior, the architect design, that designed the uh, Hotel de Soubise was Delamere, but the interior decoration was by Germain Beaufran. And he becomes one of the most popular Rococo designers or interior decorators, shall we say. And this is what we expect with the Rococo style. So it is a style that is lighter, more ornate, less ponderous. It no longer seems a centralized having a centralized purpose to extol the power of Louis XIV or of any king, but instead is something that is much more ornamental, decorative, and somewhat um, more comfortable in some ways. If you go down into our ground floor galleries in the West Building, you go down to Gallery 12, we have a Rococo interior. It's the so-called Widener Room, and you see two different versions of it here. This is a, a room that was designed by the architect Jean-Baptiste Larue. It was commissioned for a particularly important Frenchman who was the treasurer general of Louis XV, so it was a Louis XV salon, essentially. The decor, especially the wooden oak paneling, was designed by a man named Nicolas Pinot. So you can see this room, and when you go to see this room now, it looks as you see it here on the right. In the past, it was painted. We have actually stripped and painted and stripped and painted this room more than once. And that may be happening again in the near future. Originally, this room was probably painted a soft color, probably a gray, a light gray or a light green. But today you see the, the pure oak paneling. This paneling is what's referred to as a boisserie in French. The closest English translation would be what we would call a wainscot. But in fact, the wainscot usually stops at a certain level from the floor. And in the case of this kind of boisserie, it's the entire paneled wall. So in the French tradition, uh, you have a boisserie that covers the entire wall from floor to ceiling. It could be painted, it could be gilded, it might be inlaid, etc. This uh, was a room that came through the Widener family. At one point, it was in their dining room on, in their Fifth Avenue mansion but ultimately it was gifted to the National Gallery in 1957. So if you want to sort of take a step back into the 18th century Rococo, you can go in that room. I would say sit down, but in fact you can't sit on anything. Um, but there are some important pieces of furniture in the room. Charles Cresson here, the, uh, this writing table on the left, uh, which dates to about 1740, 45. It's uh, veneered uh, on oak and pine. It has all kinds of different woods, kingwood, tulip wood, purple wood, boxwood, and ebony. And then these are gilded bronze, bronze uh, mounts. Crescent was one of the greatest ebonists, uh, as they were referred to in the 18th century. He was trained as a sculptor by his father, but he became a master cabinet maker and furniture maker in the 18th century. 
Um, his furniture tends to have this kind of beautiful rhythm and flow. Most Rococo furniture does. It has these gilt bronze mounts, including these four female busts that are at the corners of the, of the table. The work on the right is by an act actually a German cabinet maker and furniture designer who worked and was active in France, and that's Joseph Baumhauer. It's this chest of drawers, sometimes referred to as a commode, and this probably dates between 1767 and 1772. All of these, both of these works were part of the Widener collection that were, uh, again, gifted to the National Gallery. So the interior design, the furniture, the decoration, the ornamentation, under Louis XV, we see a dramatic uh, shift from what would have been the, the kinds of objects and furniture and architecture in Versailles to now what we see throughout the city of Paris. Of course, Louis XIV wanted to control everything. So the closer you could get to Louis XIV, the greater your chances of succeeding in whatever your particular profession or career or interest was. And Louis played that to his advantage with his morning lavee, his morning toilette. People were invited to watch the sun rise. Uh, and depending on how close you were allowed to get into the bedroom and whether you were able to hand to the valet an article of clothing that he would then hand to Louis was a sign of your status. Um, there were whole traditions of comportment that related to how one acted, how one dressed, how one spoke. Um, if you were an artist of any sort, a playwright, composer, painter, architect, and you were not invited to be in residency uh, at Versailles, you were nowhere. Uh, and of course, that would definitely change under Louis XV. Oh, my favorite story about comportment at Versailles under Louis XIV is how you sought entrance into a room. Uh, you would grow the nail on your pinky finger long, uh, and then when you wanted to gain entrance to a room, you did not knock you took that long nail and scraped the door. Uh, so the person inside would hear this little scraping sound, and that would mean somebody was at the door. And of course, the whole reason for that was that it was considered a certain kind of um, um, discreet way of working, especially since most people were in bedrooms they shouldn't have been in uh, at the time. And the last thing you want to do is start pounding on the door and saying, anybody in there? Um, so uh, all of these, right down to simple gaining access to door, to rooms, was controlled. It's very different under Louis XV. Now, there are a whole host of painters that we associate with this Rococo style. And let's talk, or at least mention this word Rococo. Probably comes from the word rocaille, which is this decorative kind of ornamentation that we see in some of these uh, interiors. The Rococo is normally a term that refers to French painting, European painting in general, probably in the first half of the 18th century. Once we get to the second half of the 18th century, the Rococo style is beginning to lose its power, its potency, its originality in the, uh, as the a neoclassical style begins to become more prevalent. And the neoclassical style is what will be promulgated and promoted by the philosophes, because eventually philosophes like Diderot and others come to regard the Rococo as simply so 
vapid and lacking in any kind of seriousness that they are almost demanding that there be a change in aesthetic and a change in, in style. So Rococo is the dominant term in the first part of the 18th century. As we get into the second part, we would be talking about um, neoclassicism. One of the greatest painters of the Rococo is Watteau, Antoine Watteau. And here you're looking at two of his paintings. One is in our collection, the one on the left, the Italian comedians, which dates to about 1720. And a very famous painting on the right that's in the Louvre in Paris, Pierrot, it was formerly titled Gilles, G-I-L-L-E-S, but now it's referred to as Pierrot, from right around the same time, 1718-19. Watteau is one of the great painters of the 18th century anywhere. And he is Flemish, actually, by birth, but French, essentially, by adoption. And he becomes... A, one of the most original Rococo painters. People may sometimes have trouble with the excesses of painters like Fragonard or Boucher, but Watteau brings to his painting a certain intellectual rigor, and there's always something below the surface in Watteau. There's a deeper psychological uh, aspect to his paintings that, that always rewards you if you take the time to really think about it. The Italian comedians presents 15 figures, and they're arranged on these steps, and they're dressed in costumes of the Commedia dell'arte. The Commedia dell'arte was a theatrical kind of drama group that began in Italy. It was popular throughout Europe, and it had these stock characters. The Commedia had a whole repertory of stock characters, and they would perform often just on the streets. They would be street performers, sometimes in theaters. And uh, they used pantomime and gesture, dialogue, innuendo. And there were certain characters. One was Pierrot, who you see dressed in white here, this white satin. He was considered a, a kind of a naive clown of the group. And his declaration, he was always pursuing one of the other characters, who was Flaminia. And she always rejected him, so that was a base, that was a sort of in-place kind of tension through these stories. There was another character, Scaramouche, who's dressed in yellow and black that you see there, whose sweeping arm gesture sort of presents Perrault to the audience. Another character was Mezzotin. He's on the left. This was a character, he was a clown who always flirted with another character. His name was Sylvia, and she was kind of known as the ingenue. There was Harlequin that maybe is the character you're most familiar with. He's shown in the blackface on the left and wearing this red and green diamond cut costume. So that diamond leotard, that diamond pattern, is traditionally the pattern of the dress of, of Harlequin. And he's a kind of uh, adventurer. He's a jester, um, a jokester. He, he, he's constantly uh, uh, causing trouble. He's sort of a troublemaker. And that's his sort of um, persona. You see these, this garland of flowers that's been strewn into the, onto the steps, perhaps suggesting that these actors have just finished a performance and they're taking their bow. There's a kind of tension here between illusion and reality. These characters, who are characters in a theatrical troupe, the Commedia, and yet there's a deeper kind of psychological implication, especially with this character of Perrault, who stands front and center, somewhat isolated. And that's reflected as well in the great painting at the Louvre on the right. 
there, it's, it's pretty evident that Watteau identified with this particular character in the Commedia dell'arte. It was a kind of personal id, to use the term, and that it reflected to him or it embodied for him this idea that as an artist, as a painter, he was like an actor or a theatrical performer and that we all have to please the public. We're at the whims and at the mercy of a patronage, the public. We're constantly trying to curry favor. We're somewhat marginalized in society. We're on the kind of fringes of society. We live in a kind of uh, precarious way from, from performance to performance, from city to city. This idea that is evident in Watteau is going to be picked up into the 19th century and even carried into the 20th century, especially with artists who will have a similar sense of that marginal life of the, of the painter, most especially, certainly, Manet in the 19th century and Picasso in the 20th century. So when you look at paintings like The Old Musician by Edouard Manet from 1862, and you look at Picasso's family of Saltenbanks from 1905, all of, both of which are here at the gallery, this is a beautiful lineage from Watteau to Manet to, to Picasso because all three of these artists are essentially addressing the idea of the marginalization, the sense that the artist is somewhat separate from society. He's not totally accepted. In the case of Picasso, his alter ego becomes Harlequin. So in this Altenbach, that figure in the diamond leotard at the far left is a portrait of Picasso. It's a self-portrait. So he portrays himself as Harlequin. In the case of the Manet, that little boy who's like a street urchin is really related directly to the figure of the Gilles or the Perrault in Watteau. So Watteau was a painter much admired in the 19th century by artists like Manet and much admired even into the 20th century by somebody like Picasso. Two of Watteau's greatest pictures, neither one of which is here, but we need to look at these because they're so important. A Pilgrimage to Cythera on the left from 1717, that's at the Louvre, and same title, same subject, Pilgrimage to Cythera on the right, that's 1718 to 19, that's in Berlin at the Charlottenburg Palace. Um, the Louvre painting is important. It's the work that Watteau submitted to the Royal Academy of Painting and Sculpture it was meant to be his reception piece, the piece that would gain him access or entrance into the academy. There are different titles for these paintings. Sometimes they're called a pilgrimage, the embarkation, a voyage, all these different titles. He created a second version of the work that's in Berlin, the one on the right. This is a type of subject that is a standard Rococo subject. It's what in French is called a fête galante. Sometimes it's called a fête champêtre which simply means a, some kind of outdoor picnic, outing, escapade that takes place in this idealized kind of setting. It's usually something naughty is happening sometimes. People are in bushes and shrubs and things. It's amorous. It doesn't necessarily have to tilt towards the erotic, but sometimes it does. And so here you have this whole group of pilgrims who are gathering to embark to the mythic island of Cythera, which is an island where all one needs to do is enjoy hedonistic pleasures. So this theme, again, is even carried into the 19th century with Baudelaire, 
Rodin picks up on this idea in the 19th century. But here is one of its greatest manifestations to represent this distinctly Rococo idea of a fête galante, a fête champêtre. Now, here's a detail of the Vato, the Louvre painting on the upper left. And then I'm showing you on the lower left a drawing from the National Gallery by Vato, a man reclining and a woman seated on the ground from around the same time, 1716. And then a painting by Jean-Baptiste Pater on the right, who is a follower, shall we say, of Vato. And the title of that painting is Fête Champêtre on the right. This is at the National Gallery, this painting at the right. I refer to Pater probably unfairly as a poor man's Vato. He doesn't have the skill and the knack and the sophistication and the subtlety of Vato. And that's what I'm trying to show you in the upper left. One of the greatest things about Vato is his understanding of gesture and pose and how in that detail on the upper left, all of those figures are linked through either where they are looking or how they are reaching for each other. And you get an unbroken rhythmic balletic movement across that tableau so that you just move right across from the couple seated at the far right. His leg cuts down to pick up the woman on the ground. She's being raised up by a man. The woman on the left looks back at the couple who, that where the woman is being raised. And then you get to the man with his back to us, but gestures out into the deeper expanse. That's what you see in this drawing as well. Vato's drawings are magnificent. And one of the reasons they're so beautiful is because of gesture, how he understands the way figures can move and turn and gesture towards each other. There's a language. You don't even need anything else. You just can look at the way he deals with body pose, position, body language. Of course, the French painter in the 19th century who idolizes Watteau in this particular regard and will be even in some ways more skillful than Watteau is Degas. Edgar Degas will understand Watteau in and out. And what Degas was particularly admiring in Watteau is how he uses gesture. And of course, the same will be true for Degas. When you look at the pater and you compare it to the grouping of the Watteau, the pater groups are more separate, more isolated. The sense of rhythm and movement, connecting figures is much less evident. It's, they're abrupt gaps. And that's not the case with the Watteau. Here is a painting that we have at the gallery on the left called Ceres, or standing in for summer. It's part of a series of the Four Seasons uh, from 1717. And I brought in another Vato drawing in our collection, Three Studies of a Woman's Head and a Study of Hands, uh, to show you again this beautiful delicacy of his drawing. Ceres is the god of the harvest, the goddess of the harvest. She presides over summer. So she's shown as this young blonde woman with poppies and cornflowers that are in her hair. She wears a white kind of shift. And then it has this pink underdrapery. She has a sickle. She sits on clouds that are comprised of sheaves of wheat. The figures surrounding Ceres that you see are there are these blonde twins that are present bearing sheaves of wheat. Crayfish are present. The lion is present. And when you take all those symbolically, those are all symbols of the zodiac. And they're symbols of the zodiac for the summer months, the months of June, July, August. So it's Gemini, Cancer, and Leo are represented symbolically here. This painting clearly 
was part of a four-part series of oval paintings that were meant to represent all four seasons, and they were commissioned for the dining room of a patron, one of Watteau's most important patrons. Now, I mentioned the importance of women and uh, in the um, 18th century, and especially under Louis XV, and this shift away from the dominance of a figure like Louis XIV at Versailles, now into various apartments, townhouses, hotels. And what we have essentially is the rise now of salon society. Unlike Louis XIV, who controlled things with a rigor that was unrivaled, what we have now in 18th century Paris especially is the rise of salons. And these salons are presided over by women. And now, just like at Versailles under Louis XIV, if you weren't invited to be at Versailles under Louis XIV as an artist, you were nowhere. Now, if you weren't invited to the right salon, being led by the right woman, uh, you were equally nowhere. So now everybody was seeking to cultivate the relationships of these various important salon women, and no one was more important than this woman, and that's Madame de Pompadour. Neither of these paintings is in the gallery, but they're two of the most famous images, and then we'll talk a little bit more about some of the paintings in our collection. This is Madame de Pompadour on the left from 1759. That's at the Wallace Collection in London. And probably the most famous portrait of Madame de Pompadour on the right from 1756. That's in Munich at the Alto Pinacothek. These are both by Francois Boucher. Boucher was Madame de Pompadour's favorite artist. And we have a number of important Bouchers that I'll be showing you in a second. Madame de Pompadour became the royal mistress of Louis XV in 1745, and in that position she was particularly important as a political advisor and minister. Essentially, she was a minister, like a cabinet member, you might say, to Louis XV. So he did seek out her opinions and on various and sundry important uh, issues of state. She was painted by all of the leading French painters, uh, Natier, Boucher, Quentin de la Tour, Carl van Loo. So her portraits are everywhere. And her commissioning these portraits, of course, was something that was a politically important act because it tended to publicize and strengthen her position in the public sphere. So it sort of re reinforced her status as the, the most important of the, of the royal mistresses. Boucher's portrait on the right, the one that's in Munich, is a full-length version. It's one of the most spectacular paintings by Boucher of Madame de Pompadour. And here we see, once again, a even a different figure type in the Rococo. When we compare the Rococo to the Baroque, the 18th century to the 17th century, an artist like Watteau to Rubens, for example, what you see in the, eight in the 17th century were these very robust Herculean idealized, classically inspired figures, even for the women. And now we have in the 18th century Rococo, a smaller kind of prototype or model. The women are smaller, they're small-shouldered, small-breasted, their proportions are different, they're more delicate. It's a complete shift in taste, even in terms of anatomy and the portrayal of the, of the body. Here are two paintings we have. Madame Bergeret on the left, which we're not sure of the date here, possibly 1766. And the painting of Madame du Barry on the right from 1782. This is a painting that comes to us through the Corcoran collection. And it's by Elizabeth Vigila Brun, 
<clears throat> one of the most important painters at this time and at the court. So Madame Bergeret on the left is a beautiful picture. It relates strongly to the Madame de Pompadour portraits. And of course, every woman wanted to be seen as if she were Madame de Pompadour. So the same kind of elegance and status and delicacy is rendered here. Although there's probably a play, a, a pun here that's going on, because even though that dress looks incredibly elaborate and ornate and certainly not off the rack, shall we say, there are elements of it that relate to her being a kind of a shepherdess or a country girl. So the setting, this overgrown bower of the garden and all of that seems to hint at that idea, which is probably a play on words for the French word for shepherdess, which is berger, and her name is bergeret. And so there's probably a relationship there through the um, reference to the shepherdess. Her pose relates to many portraits by Boucher of Madame de Pompadour. So he's translating that from his portraits of Madame de Pompadour to Madame Bergeret. The painting by Vigie Lebrun on the right is, is a very important painting. She's one of the most, she's a foremost portraitist in Europe at this time. She paints throughout the end of the 18th century into the first decades of the 19th century. She's basically self-taught. Once again, women did not have access to the kinds of um, instruction that men had. So she was basically self-taught. She did study with some minor painters, but she was probably taught most by her father. And this is the way many women artists had careers. They had to have a family relative, a father, an uncle who was an artist who would be willing to give them instruction. Her father was a great pastel artist, a beautiful um, example of pastels. Politics played a very important role in the career of Vigie Lebrun. She was a painter to Marie Antoinette. So Marie Antoinette patronized Vigie Lebrun from starting in 1779. She was elected a member of the Royal Academy of Painting and Sculpture, and that was based on Madame de Pompadour's recommendation. So she had a good letter of reference. Uh, her ties to the royal family ultimately would put her in danger during the period of the revolution. Anybody who had been associated with the monarchy was now in trouble, and she ended up fleeing to France in, in 1789. Now, Madame du Barry, her subject here on the, on the right, she was the last of the chief mistresses of Louis XV. Chief mistress was an official title. Um, so that is an official title. Uh, there were mistresses, then there's the chief mistress. And she's the last of the chief mistresses, which, in fact, <laughs> was a semi-official position that came with an apartment. So if you were the chief mistress, you got an apartment. Of course, that was important for various rendezvous. Her relationship, though, with Marie Antoinette was contentious. Vigie Lebrun, as the painter, was supported by Marie Antoinette, but her portrait of Madame du Barry and the career of Madame du Barry, her relationship with Marie Antoinette was, was, was rather contentious. And uh, Madame du Barry will fall victim during the Reign of Terror, during the French Revolution. First, Marie Antoinette had her exiled. She convinced Louis XVI to exile Madame du Barry into an abbey run by nuns. And then there was a charge brought up that she had been sheltering emigres who had fled the revolution. She was then put on trial in 1792 by the Revolutionary Tribunal of Paris. She was accused of treason. 
and she was condemned to death and she was guillotined on December 8, 1793. On a less serious note, two of Boucher's great paintings here, one of which we have and one is at the Met. The one on the left is the love letter from 1750. It's an oil on canvas. Almost all these are oil on canvas. On the right is the painting that went with our painting. These were meant to be pendants, pendants. So the Met has the other version, or that, not the version, but the other painting, called The Interrupted Sleep on the right from 1750, same year. So we have the love letter. The Met has The Interrupted Sleep. They were meant to be shown together. They were probably over-door pictures. What we mean by over-door is simply that. They would have been placed over the door, and that might explain the perspective when it looks like we're looking up from a lower vantage point when we look at these paintings. Each of these paintings is signed and dated by Boucher. They were exhibited as a pair at the Salon of 1753. They're described in that catalog. So we know they were meant to be seen together. They were executed for one of the chateaus that belonged to Madame de Pompadour. And so they have that connection. But more than that, these are very typical. I mentioned Watteau, and Watteau, for me at least, stands somewhat apart from Boucher or Fragonard in that in Watteau, I always find, and I think is more present, some seriousness and some deeper psychological resonance. And there are things in Watteau, again, the way he connects people. And the subject matter is, is less frivolous, shall we say. Not always, but often. Boucher and Fragonard, Fragonard was the greatest student of Boucher, um, give us the kind of Rococo paintings that I think most people expect when they hear the Rococo, which are these paintings that are of amorous themes, escapades, people chasing each other around the bed, um, these delicate um, feminine figures who are involved in various kinds of trysts, people hiding in bushes, um, lots of cupids and pooty figures flying around, um, this emphasis on these pastel pinks and greens and blues, not a heavy Baroque palette like Rubens, who uses these really heavy primary colors, but pastel shades, paintings that are slightly naughty, um, not overly uh, offensive, but people would pick up on the implication of the paintings. And that's what we have classically here, especially in the love letter. So in the love letter, we have these two shepherdesses. Of course, everybody is a shepherd. You're out in the field with your sheep, but nobody's watching the sheep because um, uh, they're interested in other things. So then the sheep are getting into trouble. It's just, it's, it's horrible. Um, uh, and here we have one shepherdess who's talking to another. And while she talks, she's, you can debate the meaning here that she's tying a ribbon around a, an envelope that, has, that encloses a letter that is going to be sent to probably one of her lovers by way of carrier pigeon. So there's a pigeon there in the picture. And in fact, this is often the way missives were sent at this time. Carrier pigeons were actually used for this. So maybe she's tying it up to send it out. Maybe she just received it. And in, in any case, what it probably is re dealing with, even though we can't read any text, is some kind of rendezvous or tryst. Meet me behind a tree, you know, this kind of thing. And even the sheep are kind of interested, some of them. Uh, 
and there are these wonderful flowers. But the real tip-off in this picture is the fact that one of the shepherdesses has bare feet and these pink toes that come right out of the painting in the front near the flowers, right? That's a trope. That's a motif that anybody would have recognized in 18th century Paris, and that is, that's an erotic trope that uh, once you got your shoes off, it's a slippery slope. Um, uh, and, and that's what is, of course, uh, going on here. Now, I mention this, and I, and I should add a, a, a kind of caveat, and that is to say, because of this subject matter and the excesses at times of this Rococo subject matter in the hands of a French artist like Watteau, not Watteau, Boucher or Fragonard, sometimes we dismiss these painters. We just say, oh, you know, I, I don't even want to look at these guys. That's, un, that's not good. That's unfair because from a technical point of view, in terms of their skill, their talents as painters, these are among the really great painters in Western art history, Boucher, Fragonard, they could paint. And the reason, for example, Renoir would look closely at Boucher and at Fragonard or others, because they recognize that, okay, if we make an allowance for the subject matter, nonetheless, these guys can paint. And so that's something we should always keep in mind, their gifts and talents as painters. Here's Boucher's The Bath of Venus from 1751 here at the National Gallery, and then Drouet's great painting, the family portrait that we have from 1756. There is a relationship in the Rococo, in the throes of the Enlightenment, between a kind of rational and sensual uh, understanding of art. But what you see is, again, he's, Boucher is very successful in communicating the charm and the sensuality of the subject on the left. And you see a very different kind of body type, once again, compared to Baroque 17th century. He's a master of color. He has really beautiful touch in terms of brush stroke. He's able to create almost these porcelain surfaces when he needs to. This accent on these pinks and blues, but not on really the sort of deeper tones, but more on pastel tones. There's a visual richness to the picture. In other words, just looking at the picture and following the lines, the curves, the counter curves, is, is very satisfying. It's a subject that is mythical, this sort of bath or toilet of, of Venus, which was a very common subject. She's tending here to uh, Cupid. Her, her son is present. These other little pooty figures on, on the right, these beautiful lightly rendered trees, and this beautiful use of of light are all present. Of course, the doves down below. So there's always a sort of added element of um, intrigue. The Drouet painting is different. It's, first of all, it's much larger if you've seen it in the galleries. And it's a life-size, essentially, informal family portrait. And he dates it right on that gift box that's down on the bottom of the painting. He dates it April 1st, 1756. And the reason he dates it on that gift box, and that gift box is so prominently positioned in the painting, so you can't miss it. It's especially the way we hang the painting. The, the gift box is almost at eye level. That date is important because it's playing with calendrical significance. The medieval calendar, before we came to the Gregorian calendar, April 1st marked the beginning of spring. So that's the implication here. It was only later with the Gregorian calendar that January 1st, by the way, was New Year's Day. 
So what often happened with April 1st was that it was a day, because it was thought of as the first day of spring, it was also a day of gift giving. So people gave gifts to each other. Uh, and that's what's going on here. Of course, that tradition lingers today in a somewhat strange way, and that's, of course, April Fool's Day. Today we play tricks, we give gag gifts or something, but that actually goes back to this calendrical shift in the, in the calendar. So what are the gifts involved here? Well, the husband is leaning over. First of all, there, this is in the boudoir, so the woman has this um, shawl over her shoulders to prevent the powder from getting on her uh, garments. The husband is in his dressing gown. He leans forward, and in his hand he has a sonnet or a poem. So his gift to his wife is this poem. The young girl brings in a gift of flowers to her mother. And then the wife or the, and the mother, the wife looks to the husband but gestures to the child to say to him, this is my gift to you, this child that we have had. So there is this beautiful triangular kind of idea here of, uh, of gift giving. We don't have any specific information about who these sitters might be. But it is a very intimate view into a, into a boudoir, and it has all of the mastery of Drouet's teacher, who was Boucher. So he has really mastered these beautiful textural differences, contrasting tones, sumptuous colors, etc. Drouet became very quickly a favorite of Louis XV's last mistress, who we just talked about before her untimely death, uh, Madame Dubarry. Madame Dubarry became one of the major patrons of uh, Drouet. Here's Fragonard's Diana and Endamion on the left from 1753, and Fragonard's Young Girl Reading on the right from 1769. So, among the greatest students of Boucher are Drouet, we just looked at Drouet, and Fragonard. Fragonard is probably the more famous. These paintings are interesting in a number of ways. They're very different. The young girl reading, we did an exhibition here, I don't know now, three, four years ago, on the fantasy, so-called fantasy pictures of Fragonard, and that was very much based on this painting that we own on the right, so you might want to find that catalog still. This is the young girl reading. And we know that in 1769, Fragonard painted a group of works that today we refer to as fantasy figures. And they tended to be works that showed an individual model dressed in a kind of fancy dress, as this young woman is here, with very loose, active, painterly brushwork and colors. But we don't know what was behind the production of these pictures. They were produced for unknown reasons. Perhaps they represented real people. We don't know if that's the case or not. The young girl reading, there was always a debate about whether this was one of the so-called fantasy pictures. Eventually, a drawing surfaced. In fact, that's why we did the exhibition. A drawing surfaced that pretty much, I think, proves the point that this was, our young girl reading was one of these fantasy pictures that Fragonard executed. Regardless of that, what's so beautiful about this painting is just the paint. And compared to some of the more tightly rendered, more porcelain-like surfaces of Boucher and even of Fragonard, this picture is just a wonderful, loose, painterly kind of brushwork that appeals very much to our modern sensibilities. It certainly appealed to the French Impressionists, certainly appealed to Renoir and others. 
So it, it has just a lovely, beautiful, formal language of, of paint. And it, again, demonstrates beautifully the talent that these artists have. Boucher, Fragonard, Drouet. The Diana and Damien, this is a subject that is classical. It comes from Lucian's Dialogue of the Gods. And it was a source that artists referred to very often. The story in the Dialogue of the Gods is just that. It's a dialogue between and among Hera and Diana. And it's about this shepherd. Again, we got a shepherd here. And Damien, who is not a god, he's mortal. But Diana sees Endamion, and she becomes uh, infatuated with him. And uh, there is this discussion in the dialogue about the fact that every night Diana comes to Endamion. But backing the story up, Zeus uh, or was, was uh, jealous of Diana's affe- affection for Endamion. So he decided to give Endamion, uh, <laughs> make Endamion an offer he couldn't refuse, uh, which was, you have two choices. Uh, I can kill you. Uh, uh, or I can put you to sleep for eternity. And if you're asleep for eternity, you will never grow old. You will always remain beautiful. So Endamion went with the long nap. Uh, (laughs) And once that happens, Diana nonetheless is still moved by his beauty. And she decides that even though <laughs> We're not going to go very far with this relationship. Um, I'm going to come to him every night as the moon. I'm Diana. I'm the goddess of the hunt, but I'm also the goddess of the moon, and come to him at night and bestow a kiss upon him. So that's what's going on here. Diana's coming. Cupid is there, and Damien is sound asleep. He's a shepherd. He's dropped his staff. The sheep are kind of just looking around, but it's that's the uh, the, the story here. Uh, this was probably again an overdoor picture, an overdoor decoration. And it uh, probably was part of a set that dealt with the different times of the day. This one would have been sort of evening, and the other one that would have probably depicted Aurora and the dawn. So they, again, it would have been part of a set. Fragonard's The Swing here at the National Gallery on the left from 1775 to 80. Blind Man's Bluff on the right. These paintings, of course, go together from 1775-80. Believe it or not, Fragonard did study initially with uh, Chardin, who's of course very different, and we'll, we'll talk about him. But then he switched from Chardin to, to Boucher, and then he adopts Boucher's freer, looser kind of technique, but all this kind of fluid brushwork. And then he becomes particularly enamored of these sort of amorous themes. In the case of the swing, this is, again, uh, it would qualify as a kind of fête champêtre or a fête galante. You get all dressed up, and then you go outside, and you have a picnic, or you have various games, blind man's bluff, uh, etc. But the most famous version of the swing by Fragonard is not the one that we have here on the left. It's the one that's in the Wallace collection uh, on the right, which predates our picture uh, from 1767 to 68. That's arguably one of Fragonard's most famous pictures. The way that painting came about was that, in fact, and we have this written in an artist's journal, there was a history painter named Doyen who was commissioned by an unnamed so-called gentleman of the court, we never, his name was not identified, to paint his mistress on a swing 
pushed by a bishop with the, man, with the man who was the lover of the woman hiding in the bushes, admiring up under her skirts as she would get sort of pushed on the swing. Now, Doyen had just had a major success at the salons with a history painting, and the last thing he needed was to take a step back from history painting, which was considered among the highest realms of subject matter, history, religion, and mythology. So he, he passed on this commission, but he suggested that Fragonard might be the guy to paint it. And Fragonard was just doing the opposite at this time. He was deciding, I don't want to be a history painter. I want to paint these smaller, more amorous kinds of subjects. So the commission came to, to Fragonard. He made some changes in the original request. The older man was no longer a bishop when Fragonard painted the picture. He adds a barking dog. Uh, and then he adds this sculpture that you see on the uh, left, which is a sculpture by Falconet that I'm going to show you in a second, referred to as the menacing Cupid. That term, and I'll mention it when we come to Falconet, it's not really a menacing figure. It's a figure that's imploring us to be quiet. In other words, it has its finger up to its lips as if to tell us to, to, be, to be silent because, of course, you don't want to give away what's happening. So it's a naughty kind of little figure because, of course, the man pushing the woman, she's being viewed by the man in, in the bushes. So here, here you have it. This kind of subject matter eventually starts to wear thin, especially some of the philosophes, and most especially eventually on Diderot. But we'll come to Diderot in a, uh, in a second. And here is Falconet. I just made reference to the menacing Cupid that's embedded in the picture by Fragonard. This is our Venus of the Doves by Falconet. So I am going to mention a couple of sculptures throughout the course of the lecture. And this is it's an undated work, but certainly to the middle years of the 18th century. Falconet is one of the most important sculptors of the period. He, too, was directly patronized by Madame de Pompadour. He was highly regarded by Diderot. Diderot had a great affection and admiration for uh, Falconet. In keeping with the Rococo sort of trends in sculpture, once again, this is a small, intimate sculpture. It could fit on a little pedestal. It could fit on a, on a table next to a sofa. It's not a gigantic Bernini over life size where figures are writhing and twisting and trying to struggle like the, the rape of Persephone or Apollo and Daphne. Things have changed. This is a stable, self-contained, triangular composition. It has sort of balance and stability. So it's a whole different aesthetic in terms of sculpture. It is marble. It's carved. Falconet, as I said, received the patronage of Madame de Pompadour. In 1760, however, Diderot solicited and asked Falconet if he would contribute an essay or an article on sculpture to Diderot's encyclopedia, which I'm going to talk about in a second. And Diderot was, and uh, Falconet was flattered, of course, and he did write this essay. And that began a friendship between Diderot and Falconet. In the Salon of 1765, which Diderot reviewed and then wrote about, he wrote a lengthy portrait of Falconet. In part, it says, quote, Here is a man who is endowed with genius and who has all kinds of qualities compatible and incompatible with genius, for he has plenty of finesse, taste, wit, tact, sweetness, and grace, 
for he is boorish and polite, affable and abrupt, tender and hard. That was a compliment. Uh, but he was trying to show this kind of dichotomy. Geniuses are often have this kind of dichotomous personality. Here's a detail of our sculpture. It is beautifully carved. Falconet is fascinating because, in fact, he almost moves through three different periods. He creates large-scale monuments early in his career that can, are really more related to the Baroque, comes into a Rococo aesthetic, and in some ways even pre dates or, or sort of presages uh, a romantic sensibility later. Here is that menacing Cupid. So the one on the left is what we have today, and that came to us through the Corcoran collection, but that is after Falconet. Falconet did it as a marble, but we have today this bronze version of it that came to us through the Corcoran collection. The, the actual marble that you're looking at on the right is today at the Louvre in Paris, so that's the one. This title of menacing, the menacing Cupid, is, is inaccurate because the figure isn't really trying to be, and in fact, that probably wasn't even the original title, but it's misleading because really, as I said, what is happening here is this, this figure is related more to trying to implore us to be silent, to be quiet, to be discreet, and not any kind of menace. A couple of sculptures that people always walk by uh, without looking at uh, because they're in the sculpture hall and people, for some reason, don't realize those are works of art. Um, um, and they just want to go into the rooms and they just kind of walk through the hall. So this is Claude Dion on the left, uh, the figure of poetry and music from 1774. And we exhibit it as a pair, although they weren't created this way, but they go together nicely with a sculpture on the right by a Flemish sculptor, Jean-Pierre Antoine Tassert, called Painting and Sculpture. So we have Poetry and Music by Clodion on the left, and Painting and Sculpture on, on the right. Tassert was actually born in Antwerp. He had a successful career in France, though, although ultimately he ends up as a major sculptor in Berlin. These kinds of personifications of the arts, music, theater, dance, poetry, painting, sculpture, were very, very common at this time. Claude Dion is certainly the more important, and Claude Dion made a career out of especially, well, he has a dichotomous career. He speaks to the, to the Rococo love of these small little terracotta sensuous figures and characters like the sculpture on the left that we have here, which is terracotta, called The Surprise from 1799. But then he had a more serious side and that's what you see on the right with a, with a sculpture that we have called a Vestal from 1770. He could partake of the Rococo playfulness and sensuality and eroticism, but he also wanted to be seen as a more serious sculpture. There was a, a, an ancient draped figure in the Uffizi in Florence called the Vestal that Clodion had seen when he was in Italy, and that inspired him to begin to create these sculptures of Vestal virgins. He made seven, several statuettes of these priestesses of the Roman hearth, goddess Vesta, and she's pouring out oil here to keep this eternal flame, the sacred fire, constantly lit. So Falconet, Tassart, Clodion, very important in terms of 18th century French sculpture. And then the sculptor that you might be more familiar with, is Houdon, Jean-Antoine Houdon. 
and maybe you know him better because he did so many portraits of the uh, our founding fathers, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin. But these are sculptures by Houdon of children. They're a brother and sister from 1777, Alexander Bronyar, Bronyar and Louise Bronyar. And busts in the 17th century, sculptures, busts of children were very rare. They just were not seen as acceptable subject matter. Even in the first half of the 18th century, that was probably the case. But from 1750s into the 60s, they became more common as subjects. And part of this reason why children then became subjects and more appropriate for subject matter in the 60s and, and beyond was probably reflected in the writings of philosophes, but most especially Jean-Jacques Rousseau. His book, Emile, in 1762, deals with children. How should we educate our children? The philosophes are not systematic philosophers. I mean, they're not like uh, Kant or somebody. What they are, uh, I had one professor who called them, I always remember this, social ameliorators. Um, they, uh, they attempt to make society better by instructing us and giving us ideas based on reason and truth about how we should live, about trying to debunk myth. And this included often ideas about religion, which is why many of them got into trouble, to try to um, shape society so that it would be a better place. And this meant you had to deal with children, because as we always say, children are the future. So the philosophes, Rousseau specifically, became very concerned with how one should educate children and the role that children should play in society. What is the responsibility that parents have to children and to raising children? So these two children were actually the children of a very famous architect who had designed the stock exchange in, in Paris. And Houdon has this remarkable ability to get right into the sort of psychology without sentiment. He's not a sentimentalist. He doesn't make them into saccharine little figures. They con contrast with each other. Uh, Alexander is dressed. Louise is nude. The boy seems a little more mischievous, a little livelier. The girl is a little more poised. Her hair is up in a bun. The way he even changes the way he drills and, and incises the eyes, so there's a different sense of vitality in the various eyeballs. The boy's eyeball irises are just kind of incised, whereas the, the young girl's are almost deeply hollowed out, so there's a different sense of, of vitality. So these are very important, but what we most often expect from Houdon are images of some of the philosophes, also some of the founding fathers in the American Revolution, but here are his two busts of Voltaire uh, from 1778. One, of course, he's dressed with his powdered wig, and on the right, it's uh, essentially a nude, Voltaire died in 1778, and what was important for Houdon is that very often Houdon worked, most often, he worked from life. So he would actually be with the person and he would do perhaps a plaster or a clay study. And then often he would even, in the case of somebody who had, who had died, he would do a death mask. He would do a life masks when people were still alive, but he would also make death masks. And in the case of Voltaire, he was very fortunate because he was able to get access to Voltaire to sit for him just a few weeks before Voltaire died. Voltaire died on May 30th, 1778. 
So he was able to do a life study, but then he also did a mask. Uh, later, after Voltaire's death, he made a death mask. And that's why this sculpture has such vitality. Houdon's career coincides with the revolutions in America and in France. He even spills into the period of the Directory in France and in the Empire of Napoleon. He presents us with portraits of some of the most important figures in both of these revolutions. He's born in Versailles. He has an incredibly rigorous and complete formal education. So he was incredibly well-educated, well-read, spoke a number of languages. He wins the Prix de Rome, the Rome Prize that allows him to study in Italy in 1761. He was especially celebrated by Diderot. I keep mention, mentioning Diderot because Diderot was not just a philosopher, but he was an art critic. And he was very much interested in writing about the arts, and we're going to come to him now in a second. One of Houdon's most famous busts is a bust of Diderot from 1771. And that, in some ways, launched his career as a portraitist. From there, he would do Jefferson, Franklin, Washington, and, and others. So here is uh, Diderot. So we need to now, sure, I've mentioned him already three or four times. This is a portrait of Denis Diderot, uh, Denis Diderot from 1767. That's in the Louvre. It's a portrait by Louis-Michel Van Loo. And on the left is the um, first volume and the frontispiece, the title page, of his encyclopedia, his greatest accomplishment. It's open to the title page here. This general encyclopedia was published in France between 1751 and 1772. It had later supplements, revisions, translations. Diderot didn't write it. He was the editor. And so he solicited contributions from important people who had expertise that he didn't have. For example, he asked Falconet to write about sculpture, as I just mentioned. The encyclopedia is probably the most famous document for representing the thought of the Enlightenment. Diderot's goal was, was ambitious. He, he wanted to collect all of human knowledge in this encyclopedia. So everything about anything he wanted into this, into this book. So this Diderot was not just an encyclopedist, and he was not just an editor, but he was also an art critic. And he wrote extensively on the Paris salons. The salons had begun in 1737. Each year, the Royal Academy of Painting and Sculpture presented a public exhibition. Um, it actually happened like every two years. It wasn't an, an annual. And there could be up to 450 works of art in the show. This stimulated a very rich intellectual climate in Paris about discussion about art. These salons were covered by the newspapers. The Academy sold programs. There were unofficial guides to the salon. And there was essentially the birth of what we would call today modern art criticism at this time. And this became one of the great topics of intelligent sort of discourse. Uh, and Diderot was among the most important uh, writers. So we're going to continue to refer to him. And here we have a change of pace. What some people don't realize is that concurrent with the Rococo paintings of Boucher and Fragonard, uh, Watteau, uh, Drouet, those amorous escapades, we have a painter like Chardin. They're exactly contemporary, and Chardin could not be more different. 
So we have a wonderful collection of Chardin. This is the fruit jug and a glass on the left from 26, 1726, and still life with a white mug on the right from 64. Chardin was born in Paris, spent his entire life in the city. He came from an artisan class. His father manufactured billiard tables. At about the age of 14, he was apprenticed to a history painter for a while, but that was not for him. History painting, grand, big subjects, was, they were not for Chardin. He had painted a signboard, which was very common. Watteau painted a signboard as well in 1720 that was an advertisement for a surgeon. It was the sign that a surgeon would put out outside of his office. We've lost that, that signboard, but we know about it from descriptions. And this moved him more towards painting genre subjects and also, of course, still life. So he becomes one of the greatest still life painters of the French Rococo, the French 18th century, and also a painter of genre pictures, scenes of, of everyday life. Now, you can track Chardin because his paintings are so magnificent. They're so small, but they're so magnificent. You can track Chardin's influence all the way into the 19th century with Courbet and Manet, certainly Cezanne, and even into the 20th century with Picasso and, and others who admired Chardin because he was so truthful and he was so honest and he was so direct and he had an ability to see things with an unfettered kind of uh, eye. Uh, he, he received admittance into the Royal Academy, but he was under a special category, which was not considered one of the high. In other words, he, do, he wasn't admitted as a history painter. He was admitted as a painter of animals and fruits. That was his, that was his category. Here are the kitchen maid on the left from the gallery from 1738, and then we've added this wonderful painting from the Corcoran collection on the right, the scullery made from 1738. Chardin's art was popular with everybody, the bourgeois, uh, bourgeoisie, the aristocratics, uh, aristocratic uh, elements, royal collectors, etc. He had a laborious working method. He often did repeat subjects more than once. If they were successful, he would replicate them in, his, in other paintings. He runs counter to both the Rococo idea of that kind of eroticism and somewhat frivolous subject matter and also counter to a classical language. He, his language is of the here and the, and the now. He began to lose his eyesight late in life and turned to uh, pastels, which are equally beautiful. Here's uh, Soap Bubbles, one of our most famous Chardins from 1733, and then House of Cards, 1737. Both of these are in the gallery. So Chardin, one of the reasons Chardin caught the attention of philosophers like Diderot is because here was a guy whose paintings had meaning, and they had important meaning, and they had a certain morality, and they had a certain didactic quality. For example, in the soap bubbles, we see a young boy with a younger boy who's off to the right who's blowing a soap bubble, here, the tradition goes back to Dutch 17th century painting. We have our great Jan Steen painting of the dancing couple that shows a boy blowing a bubble off into the, on the right. Blowing bubbles for children was not just a form of entertainment, but it was seen as a commentary on the transience of life. A bubble doesn't last, it bursts. 
And if you're raising children especially, you need to give children a foundation that will last beyond just the trans transience of blowing bubbles. They need a foundation. So this is the way these paintings were, were interpreted, especially by people like Diderot. They were seen as very important commentaries on life. The painting is rigorous. I mean, he frames the boys in this sort of square. The boy makes a triangular shape with his body. I mean, it, he thinks out all of the various formal components. You could see why somebody like Cezanne would love looking at Chardin. Rousseau, not just Diderot, but especially Rousseau, argued about children and up, bringing children up. And one of the things about children that he advocated beyond just giving them a foundation and everything, and it seems somewhat counterintuitive, was that they should be left, children should also be left to follow their instincts. They shouldn't have too much control imposed upon them when they're young. So here is Rousseau in a beautiful pastel by Quintin de la Tour from 1753. We do not have this. This is in a museum in France. And then on the right, I'm showing you the title page and frontispiece to his great book, Emile, or On Education, published in 1762. So this is Rousseau's treatise on the nature of education. Many people, even today, consider this the best and most important book that Rousseau wrote. He got into trouble with certain attitudes that he expressed about the church. There was a section of the book, a chapter called Profession of Faith of the Savoyard Vicar. And it's not complementary to religion. And so the book was banned for a while in Paris. It was banned in Geneva. And in fact, they publicly burned it in Geneva uh, the year of its first publication. But during the French Revolution especially, Emile served as an inspiration for what ultimately would become the French new national system of education. This book actually had an implication for formalizing education in the, in the state of France. Here is Chardin's The Little Schoolmistress on the left, and I'm comparing it to the Fragonard Young Girl Reading on the right. The Schoolmistress is sometime after 1740. The Young Girl Reading is, of course, 1769. I like this because um, maybe Fragonard knew this Chardin painting. Uh, they're different. In other words, if we look at the girl reading, it is part of these fantasy pictures, but we can interpret that painting in a different way. We can interpret it as a young girl who is reading, interested in education, self-improvement. She's absorbed in that book. This is not a frivolous indication of a woman doing something or a girl doing something in a frivolous way. So we could think of it in that way, and in that case, it aligns nicely with, with Chardin, where a young schoolmistress is teaching a younger child to, to read and to write. So the emphasis is on learning, education, reading, all of that. Chardin favors often this pose of a figure seen from the side across the plane onto a tabletop or to some kind of uh, piece of furniture. It's a marvelous picture of education. And again, in keeping with what was being advocated by so many of the philosophes. Now we get to the middle years of the century. And remember, because sometimes it's, it's not recalled, that Herculaneum is discovered in 1738 down in southern Italy, not far from Naples. 
Herculaneum was rediscovered by workmen who were digging for foundations for a summer palace for the king of Naples. And then not long after that, Pompeii was discovered and excavated in 1748. And here you see the map on the right that shows you the relative positions of Vesu Naples, Vesuvius, Herculaneum, and Pompeii. We did a huge Pompeii show here several years ago. So now people were getting firsthand information about the classical world, places like the House of the Fawn here in Pompeii, there's a second century BC residence, and the Villa of the Mysteries. We had actual fresco paintings on the right from Pompeii. And this fuels a number of different ideas, changes in attitude in the 18th century, one of which is this fascination now with ruins and certain painters who will become known for painting ruins and looking at the classical world as a world that has come and gone. And that shows, us, shows up here with Hubert Robert. We did a big Robert show here also a few years ago. This is the oval fountain in the gardens of the Villa d'Este on the left from 1760. And our painting that we have here from 1775, the Ponte Solario, Robert was so associated with pictures of classical ruins and classical locations that he came to be known as Robert of the Ruins. That was his kind of nickname. He was also important in redesigning gardens. He redesigned Louis XVI's gardens at Versailles. But in the 18th century, Rome had certainly fallen onto hard times. Uh, around the, the Colosseum was a cow pasture. People were grazing cows. It continued to attract young tourists, but most especially people who were on the Grand Tour, young noblemen, from, especially from Great Britain, who were to now have their education by traveling to all the great capitals of, the, of Europe, going to Paris, going to, to Florence, going to Rome, et cetera, to learn about the past. These travels, then are, these young travelers wanted to have some memory of their travels. Today, we would buy a postcard. Uh, but they would have paintings. So artists like Panini and Robert made a living out of painting the various landmarks and ruins of Rome, as we have here with the Ponte Solario. We'll come back to Panini in a second. This is a painting by an artist who's very important, but our collection doesn't represent his most important work, and that's Jean-Baptiste Greuze. This is a painting on the left that we have at the gallery. It's a portrait uh, from 1759 of Ange Lorraine. But the painting on the right is at the Louvre in Paris from 1777. It's the so-called Father's Curse, or sometimes called the Son Punished. Gruz is born in Tournu in 1725. He has an aptitude for art early. He's sent to Lyon, and then he goes on to Paris we don't know much about the early years in Paris. He really makes an impact in the first salon that he exhibits in, in 1755. But from that point forward, he seems to have nothing but disdain for the salons, and he decides to exhibit his work independently. He has a kind of defiance about the salons. But the, the philosophe who saw in Greuze a fundamental shift in taste now and in the importance of subject matter was Diderot. He's a very early supporter. So when Greuze painted pictures like the one on the right, the father's curse or the son punished, which deals with essentially a son who's there on the far right, 
who has who demanded from his father early on. It's sort of like the prodigal son demanded his inheritance early. His father gave him his inheritance. He went off into the world, and he, of course, ends up being impoverished, broke, totally now a pauper. And he comes finally back to home. And by the time he comes home, his father is on his deathbed. In fact, that's the boy's dog who doesn't even recognize him because he's in such a bad state. The dog is kind of sniffing. Is this the kid who used to be my master? And the mother is there showing her son. In essence, she's saying, see what you did to your father? You, you've killed him. Uh, he was so brokenhearted. You had to have your inheritance. You had to go out. Now you're poor. You've squandered your inheritance. And now you're coming back to us at this point in time. And everybody in the painting is having a strong reaction. The, the daughters at the left, the kids, everybody here is in mourning. But notice the gestures are very strong and rhetorical. This open-handed gesture that you see throughout, this tableau vivant of everything pulling, being pulled up to the front of the picture plane so it looks like it's happening on a stage set. The, the dramatic light and shadow, the morality of the subject, this is what Diderot now began to, to celebrate in his writings about, about Greuze. Here is a painting, unfortunately it's not often illustrated, so I only have a black and white, but this is the same subject, in essence, the well-loved mother. Now it's the mother who's well-loved by her, her family from 1769. This is in a collection, a private collection in Madrid. But we have a study for that painting in the National Gallery on the right. So this is our study for the well-loved mother. It's a pastel from 1765. The Gruz exhibited a study for this picture at the 1765 Salon, and Diderot jumped right on it. And Diderot said, quote, Gruz is the first who has set out to give art some morals and to organize events into series that could easily be turned into novels. They were telling a story. And then Diderot went on to describe the scene in this picture, and he said this, The mother of all these children has joy and tenderness painted on her face, along with a bit of strain inevitably following from the overwhelming mo movement and weight of so many children whose violent caresses will become too much for her if they continue much longer. Much further left, the husband returning from the hunt he joins in the scene by extending his arms, tilting backwards a bit, and laughing. He's a big young fellow who carries himself well, and his satisfaction betrays his vanity at having sired this pretty swarm of brats. <laughs> this is excellent, both for the talent it demonstrates and for its moral content. It preaches population and paints a sympathetic picture of the happiness and advantages deriving from domesticity. It announces to any man with soul and feelings, maintain your family comfortably, make children with your wife, as many as you can, but only with her, and you can be sure of a happy home. <laughs> now that's a, that's a philosoph, that's Diderot reviewing this picture, and that's what he wants the public to take away. Now, this is going to be important, and it's going to dovetail into a neoclassical language. And with neoclassicism, we have to encounter the figure of Johann Winkelmann, the German art historian. This is an engraving we have at the gallery on the left of 
portrait of Winckelmann by Angelica Kaufmann from 1780, and the famous painting by Angelica Kaufmann on the right, that's in the Kunsthaus in Zurich from 1764. Winckelmann, if we set Vasari aside for the moment, Winckelmann is considered in many ways the first art historian because he was truly systematic in the way he approached the history of art. He thought about it as organic growth and maturity uh, and decline. He was interested in art and artifacts. And in 1764, he publishes The History of Art in Antiquity, a major, major work dovetailing with the excavations of Pompeii and Herculaneum. The writings of Winckelmann now give inspiration to a whole big neoclassical uh, realm of of uh, art and literature and philosophy in the in the late 18th century in architecture monuments like the pantheon in the upper left which is a roman first century a.d building that was the best preserved roman temple still is today affect people like thomas jefferson the library at the university of virginia in the upper right monticello in the lower left even of course john russell pope the west building here of the national gallery here is our great painting by Giovanni Paolo Panini on the left, the interior of the Pantheon from 1734. And of course, that is our rotunda in the West Building on the right. Panini, Robert was very important, but Panini is certainly the most celebrated and popular view painter in 18th century Rome. Robert is French, Panini is Italian. He was born in Piacenza. He studied perspective and architectural painting in the last 30 years of his life, he specializes in these views of Rome, and this is the work that secured his lasting uh, reputation. He becomes a view painter, what we call in Italian vedute. Vedute means views, and there were two different types of views that he produced, some without going into the Italian. Some were simply accurately rendered views of actual places, like the Colosseum or the Pantheon, uh, others were a kind of an amalgam, imaginary views that combined real buildings with a more imaginary kind of, of setting. These were the kinds of paintings and the prints derived from them that filled guidebooks, tourist books. These were the kinds of paintings that young noblemen, especially from Great Britain, when they were on the Grand Tour, these were the kinds of paintings they collected and brought back to England, which is why when some of the greatest Panini paintings are today in English collections. Now, I know I'm over time, and but I've got to at least mention, and this is hard to summarize, <laughs> because in essence, this is arguably the most important painter that I'm talking about today, Jacques-Louis David. And this is a self-portrait of David in 1791. On the left, that's in the Uffizi, and one that's in the Louvre on the right from 1794. David is, um, is so important and so interesting and so fascinating and so complicated that you simply have to read a biography of him on your own uh, because, uh, first of all, he's one of the greatest painters in the Western tradition, without a doubt. He is present at a time in European history when there is so much revolution and ferment, and he himself becomes a part of this that just the events of his life themselves are, are the stuff of novels. He's born in Paris in 1748. He's actually a relative, he's actually distantly related to Boucher, believe it or not. 
instead of studying with Boucher, Boucher advises him to work with a different painter as a young artist than to study with a man named Joseph-Marie Vienne. Vienne was already a, a promoter of a neoclassical reaction to the Rococo. He was steeped in Winkelmann and in these excavations. So that's where David begins with Vienne. He, um, <clears throat> this guy is so <laughs> fascinating. Uh, he competes for the Prix de Rome, this Rome prize that would allow you to study in, in Rome. He uh, submits a painting in 1771 and he loses. He submits a painting in 1772, he loses again. When he loses the second time, he decides he's gonna commit suicide. But he's gonna commit suicide by locking himself in a room and not eating, um, a slow death. And eventually he got hungry and he ate. Um, and then he tries a third time. And this time, after the second time, he took the names of everybody who was on the jury and he just filed them away for the future. And then he tries for the Prix de Rome a third time and he loses a third time. And then he finally wins in 1774 and that allows him to go to Rome. And he's in Rome from 1775 to 1780. He's overwhelmed by the classical nature of Rome, not just the excavations and the, the artifacts that he's seen, but the Italian Renaissance. He makes it as far south as Naples, which kind of completes his conversion. He ultimately comes back to produce one of the greatest pictures in Western art history, and it's a watershed. There are certain paintings in the history of art that move art history ahead like a lurch. Picasso's Damoiselle d'Avignon, Jericho's Raft of the Medusa, and this is one such painting. This is the Oath of the Horatii by David from 1783. Now this picture, along with two others that he produced at this time, this painting was exhibited in 1785, I should say. It's in the Louvre today. This painting was a bombshell. He felt he had to actually go back to Rome to finish this picture. He did, then he comes back to Paris. He exhibits the painting. It's based on a story from Livy. It's Roman history. It's Republican history, not the empire. It's the story, in fact, it's even earlier than the Republic. It's about these two warring armies, the Roman army, and this Alban army that are fighting, they decide to send three, instead of having all these armies massacre each other, they decide to send three warriors from each clan. And so this is the Horatii brothers taking an oath on their swords that their father holds to go out and meet this enemy. The mother and daughters are on the far right. In 1785, this painting in France was a bombshell. And then he followed it up with these two pictures the death of Socrates from 1787, and the lictors bringing to Brutus the bodies of his sons from 1789. Notice these dates, 85, 87, 89. 89 is the French Revolution. David's paintings, these three as a triumvirate of paintings, rocked French society because they seemed to all emphasize the idea of sacrifice, of individual freedom and liberty, of uh, death to tyrants. All of these ideas made these pictures political bombshells. The subject, for example, of the Brutus is Brutus, who is the founder of the Roman Republic. He understands and hears that his sons are plotting against him and he has his sons killed in order to preserve the Republic. So these paintings were a tremendous lurch. And all you have to do is 
compare a painting like the Horatii to this. <laughs> I may be overstating things here. Uh, but this is Boucher's Cupids in Conspiracy <laughs> from 1740. That's in Cleveland at the Cleveland Museum of Art. And the Oath of the Horatii from 1785. So these Cupids, they're conspiring. And I, I don't think they're going to overthrow the state. Uh, I don't think they're real threats. And this is what Diderot was implying. I mean, literally, Diderot was saying, if I see another puto, I'm going to throw up. Uh, and we have to have painting now that speaks to a higher cause. Now, in our collection, what we lack, and I, I mean, I'm not trying to, I mean, we have a great collection, but what we lack is a great neoclassical David. We do not have that in the sense of one of these pictures here. We come close with his style. This is the circle of David on the left, portrait of a young woman in white from 1798. And I'm comparing the dress and manner here to David's portrait of Madame Recamier on the right, which is at the Louvre, an unfinished painting. Juliette Recamier was the wife of a Parisian banker. What you see in both cases is the effect of the excavations of Pompeii and Herculaneum on fashion. We now had an entire antique style of furniture and of dress. The painting on the right is interesting. It's unfinished. David held it back and wouldn't release it to Madame Recamier. She got irritated with how long it was taking him, and she ended up uh, hiring one of his students to paint her portrait instead. So David kept this painting in his studio for his entire life. We have an, an interesting sculpture here on the left called A Lady from 1810. It's a terracotta by Joseph Chinard. And this is Chinard's Juliette Recamier, the same lady we just looked at on the right. That's in a museum in Lyon. Chenard was intimately involved with Napoleon. Napoleon, he became one of the great portraitists during the Napoleonic period. So we do have a beautiful example of a Chenard sculpture that's downstairs, and it's this terracotta on the left. That Recamier portrait by Chenard is one of his most famous. David starts in a Rococo. I mean, he's, he's related to Boucher. Then he adopts this neoclassical style, and uh, then he becomes part of the revolution. He's, he's a member of the convention. He votes for the death of the king and the queen. He's close friends with all of the leading revolutionaries, most especially Robespierre. As the revolution goes into its most horrific stage, the so-called reign of terror, everybody's getting beheaded now. Anybody who is even tangentially related to the king and the queen is going to the guillotine. But eventually, there is a reaction against that blood and that reign of terror. And what we have is the rise of a strong man, and that's Napoleon. And now David is on the wrong side. When Napoleon comes to power, David is one of the revolutionaries. He should have been guillotined. He's put on trial for his life, and he makes the most horrific, stuttering, stammering, pathetic excuse for himself, saying, I was only trying to save the arts for France. I, wasn't, I don't really know those guys. Um, even though he paints one of the greatest martyrdom pictures of the death of Marat, uh, he's close to Robespierre, to Danton, all of these guys. And believe it or not, it works. He gets off. He's sent to, to imprisonment. But when Napoleon comes to power, Napoleon recognizes, you know, I have no legitimacy. I'm a political bastard. I'm not a king. I, don't, I can't trace my lineage back. So I need somebody as a propaganda artist. And the best guy 
is David. So David is plucked out of prison and becomes the painter to Napoleon. <laughs> so here is David's great Napoleon crossing the Alps, a pure fiction uh, from 1801. There are a number of versions of this. Now, Napoleon is literally dictating to David, okay, I want you to show me on a horse, a big stallion, it's rearing back, I'm going through the Alps, I'm pointing the way to the future, my troops are coming up behind me, and on the ground there are references to me, to Hannibal, to Charlemagne, uh, in the stone that you see in the lower left, the inscriptions, so that's establishing my lineage. And of course, you don't say to Napoleon, well, I don't think that's a good idea. Um, And we all know, everybody knew how Napoleon crossed the Alps here on the left. This is a painting by Paul Delaroche. Napoleon crossing the Alps from 1850, that's in Liverpool today. Napoleon crossed, you don't go through these passes with these narrow paths where you could plummet to your death on a horse, which is not very sure-footed. You go on a mule, and the mule is led by a guy who knows the way through the pass, and you just hang on and let the guy take you through the pass. That's what you see. That's the truth of the painting on the, uh, on the left. Napoleon says, look, I want you to show me uh, on this horse, etc." and that's exactly what David does. And then later, and this is where we come in, in terms of our collection, this is David's portrait of his wife, Madame David, on the left from 1813. Once Napoleon consolidates power, He's first council, first he's part of a triumvirate, then he's first council, and then in, in the case of some people, it looks like he might be a great liber- fighter for liberty. Beethoven is very disillusioned initially. He thinks he's gonna be a great fighter for freedom, but then he crowns himself king, uh, emperor, I should say, and then things change, and now David has to give the, that sort of myth its legitimacy, and that's what the emperor Napoleon in his study from 1812 is all about. It was actually commissioned by a a Brit who was a great Francophile. But the painting is, again, pure propaganda. He he shows Napoleon in his military uniform of the Imperial Guard, the grenadiers of the Imperial Guard. His hair is disheveled, his leggings are wrinkled, his cuffs are unbuttoned. Why? Well, if you look at the clock, it's four in the morning. This guy's been up all night. Why is he up all night? Because he's writing the Code Napoleon which is the basis of French law, which is on the, on the chair, and you can see the word code. He's taken off his sword. He's no longer a warrior. Now he's a statesman. It's, he's been up all night because you see the clock, but you also see that the candle has burned down. You don't need a candle if it's four in the, in the afternoon. So it's pure propaganda to now show the shift in Napoleon from that figure of the warrior now to the figure of the great statesman. And indeed, French law is based in part on the Code Napoleon. Now, the last thing I want to say, and, I, and I'm gone way over, and I'm sorry, but it's always the case with me. Um, <laughs> the, the followers of David, and now I'm getting out of the uh, 18th century anyway, into the 19th century. This is Fragonard's Diana and Damien that we already looked at, that we have here at the National Gallery. But David produced some of the most important painters out of his studio. And in fact, they had a name for most of them because they were all bearded. And they were referred to as the barbu, as the bearded ones. And a host of important painters come out of the studio of David. Most importantly, Jean-Auguste Dominique Angre. But equally important in many ways is the painter who painted this picture on the right, and that's Giraudet. 
Anne-Louis Giraudet. This is his Sleep of Endymion from 1791. And now you can see what's happening. And what's happening is that the neoclassical canon of David is being altered by his students. The painting on the right certainly refers to classicism in the torso of Endymion, but the mood, the feeling, the sense of this now, you, where is Diana? Well, Diana now is just the moonbeam. And what's that Cupid doing? He's pulling back the bushes to allow the moonbeam to strike Endymion. It's a figure that, it's a painting that is already now a pre-romantic sort of painting in many ways. He's looking at different sources, Leonardo's Sfumato, Correggio. It's a whole now abandonment of what David had put into place. And ultimately, this is the case with his greatest student, Ang. And we have this great self-portrait on the left of Ang from 1822. Ang is the ultimate draftsman, incredible draw. And then this portrait of Marcot de Argentuy from 1810. Ang comes out of the studio of David. Initially, he is very much in a neoclassical mode. Here is his Oedipus and the Enigma of the Sphinx on the left that's at the Walters from 1864. And then another version, he often did the same version of uh, different versions of the same subject, the one that's at the Louvre on the right from 1808. But what we begin to see with Ang is now a clear alteration of the Davidian canon. So here in the Grand Odalisque on the left from 1814 and the Odalisque with a slave from 1842, that's also at the Walters. If you look at that Odalisque on the left and you look at her back, she's got at least seven extra vertebrae. Um, this is a distortion now of the, of the neoclassical canon. This is now a painting, both paintings, but especially the one on the right, that is almost purely a sense painting, a sensory painting. You have references to the five senses, touch, taste, sound, sight, smell. Everywhere you find some reference to that. It's a sensual painting. It's a painting that is now getting us into the realm of what Robert Rosenblum wrote about, saying that now we have this canon with Giraudet and Ang that we might aptly call romantic classicism or classic romanticism. There's a change that's happening in the students of David. Even in these portraits, the Moitessier portrait on the left that's at the Met from 51, and our Moitessier, Madame Moitessier, that's here at the gallery. With Ang, you start to see an abstraction. He's, that's both real, but it's abstract. He uses the mirror now on the left. You have different levels of reality. His use of line, here is so important to artists like Degas, Picasso, Matisse. They all come back and look at the work of Ang in that regard. And this is taking us finally, you'll all be happy to know, beyond the 18th century. This is Ang's self-portrait at the age of 24, on the left from 1804. And this is Delacroix, his self-portrait, 1837. We now are moving beyond the classicism and the neoclassicism of the 18th century into romanticism. Ang himself is a portal. And Delacroix is interesting because Delacroix is seen as the arch-romantic, but Delacroix himself thought of himself as a classicist. So we have this ultimate change of the canon, and that takes us into 19th century romanticism with these two painters who lived long into the 19th century. Ang dies in 1867. He actually outlives Delacroix. 
Delacroix dies in 1863, but that's the 19th century collection, which we may bring to you on another day. Thanks very much. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast. Thank you.